Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste make a big noise when they collide. Yeah! Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other sites around town. <laughs> man about town. Painting the man, town red. Ladies man, man's man, man about town. All of those things. Uh, and uh, with me, as always, is my scintillating co-host, the intelligent, the... Samuel Johnson to my Boswell. I know that reference. You know, you know Dr. Samuel Johnson? Yeah, he had made all that beer. Yeah, you're, well, you're thinking of Sam Adams, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Who was a real person, by the way, and, and not anything to do with Samuel Johnson. They were related, they had the same name. Of course. Yeah. They're both from the Samuel family. Yeah. All guys named Sam are related. My name is William Bibiani, I'm a film critic. Uh, for the rap and bloody disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, yeah, welcome back to Critically Acclaimed. This episode, and actually a couple episodes here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, were a little late because I was out of town. You were a way out in the Big Apple. Yes, and I made it a little bit smaller just by being there. Took a big bite of the Big Apple. <laughs> Did. You can really I taste re- the apple. I remember when Al Jolson ran amok and climbed the Chrysler building. After that, he couldn't get arrested in this town. <laughs> um, yeah, I was uh, over at the movie trivia Schmodown live event. I got to play uh, a three-way match against the great Dangerous Dan Merle and the great Brendan the Kid Meyer um, in front of a live audience. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, technically speaking, I'm allowed to talk about spoilers. However, out of respect, I won't. Uh, just in case because it was, it was a live event. It was so a live was, event, but um, it was pay per view, and it will be uh, made okay, public yeah. like net later this week. Then be a little ginger with yeah. the results. So th- we lifted the spoiler <laughs> ban. I could talk about it if I wanted to. I know other people have, mm-hmm. but uh, this isn't the best venue for it. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a hell of a match. Uh, it was uh, there were some controversial calls made, and uh, I'm sure I'll be answering some questions about those. But. Uh, Anyway, I want to thank everybody who showed up. I want to thank uh, everybody who supported uh, the Mouthy Mercs, the faction of which I am a part. I look forward to your big debut again uh, as one of the Burning Droogs. The Burning Droogs. I'm not sure uh, if they're going to give us special costumes or if we get to wear our ordinary clothes. You can get costumes. But yeah, I and Video Drew and Alonzo Duralde and several others are now c- competing together yes. against other people. I, I, I seriously mm. can't wait. I think this is going to be your year. I think you've had some bad <laughs> luck, and I think it's mm. going to turn. And I cannot wait. Uh, bad luck. Better sleep. A better sleep pattern. That's all I long for. <laughs> your last couple of matches, you know, it, first off, you you did really great, especially in your team's match. Yeah. But it was like first thing in the morning and you were exhausted because you had like pulled a midnight shift the night before. Well, the, the, it's not fair. You should a, a little bit how the sausage is made. Um, they they t- tend to record a lot of those matches on Saturday mornings, which mm-hmm. a lot of people if they know they're going to be recording Saturday mornings, have the good sense to go to bed a little bit earlier than they ordinarily would on Friday nights. You know, prepare. This is not a choice of mine. I project midnight shows at the New Beverly Cinema. Friday nights are when Quentin shows his own movies. Uh, And his movies aren't short. uh, Reservoir Dogs is under two hours. Everything else uh, pushes over two and a half. So I'm usually up pretty late on Friday nights. Yeah. And then I have to get up early on Saturday mornings, put on a suit, and try to stay conscious... And answer questions about Die Hard. You should you should tell your manager you need matches in the afternoons. Yeah, that's got to be like a thing. Like you just need them in the afternoons. <laughs> Can that's, we record in the afternoon, please? For the love of God! 
Um, but uh, anyway, it's going to be a big, crazy season. <clears throat> the season is kicked off. I highly recommend, if you haven't seen that live show when it premieres, uh, check it out because it was not one but two really great matches. Robert Meyer Burnett actually took on Andrew... I forget his cool name guy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it'll be a lot of fun. Um, but let's uh, talk about some new movie releases. Uh, I, I Because I was out of town, I saw way less than I normally would like to. So all I saw uh, was Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman. But fortunately, Whitney Seibold is here to talk about the new releases. Last Full Measure, The Color Out of Space, and What Did Jack Do? What did Jack do? But let's get started. Let's get started with uh, the big wide release of the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be the latest Guy Ritchie joint, The Gentleman. And, Which is uh, his second film in, like, what, seven months? Yeah, he had Aladdin came out mm-hmm. uh, this summer. Let's do a quick primer on Guy Ritchie, shall we? Okay, well, I was there when Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels hit. came out in 99 one of the, the many notable films that came out that year, and mm-hmm. a lot of people saw it as this great big stylish declaration of intent. Mm-hmm. And indeed it was. He kind of almost instantly invented a new version of what had in a previous generation we called the bloke film. And I'm talking about films like Get Carter and and uh, the Italian uh, films with Michael Caine, essentially from uh, the seventies. British crime movies. British crime movies from about, the seventies about working class criminals, not debonair diamond thieves, but yeah, just yeah. guys who hang out in bars and then occasionally mm. rob stuff. I've, I've heard them described as bloke films, and uh, Guy Ritchie was sort of like a neo bloke, and he decided to make these very chatty, dialogue-heavy, character-driven, very complicated, story-driven uh, crime movies about yeah. a bunch of British dudes who rob each other and are always after the same amount of money and a lot of colorful characters in the underworld. The idea is there's always a series of characters, usually groups of characters. Mm-hmm. So there are these like low-level thugs who operate out of a bar. There's like a hitman and his son, and then there's the guy who runs the crime syndicate, and then there's mm-hmm. these other guys who are weed dealers, and they'd all have their own stories, and mm-hmm. they'd all have these short stories. If you cut them out of the movie, they'd be less than 20 minutes each. Mm-hmm. But because they're all after the same thing, or because through coincidence Incidences, they're all their stories all intersect. Guy Ritchie plays them all together to weave this large tapestry of what his idea of the world of crime mm-hmm. is like in England. And it is funny and it is violent and it is full of memorable characters. And I'm mm-hmm. gonna say this right now: Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Really fun. Really fun. It's it's yeah. really shabby. And yeah. I feel like Guy Ritchie has been very slowly inching toward uh, a kind of slickness that he hasn't actually ever attained until, I would argue, this film. Uh, Even Mm. his Sherlock Holmes movies play really fast and loose and feel kind of sloppy. And I think that was sort of his, just sort of his his working... Angle. He well, just liked to make films in that, uh, in that well, sort of style. Let, let's let's breeze through <laughs> just his filmography for a sense mm-hmm. of context. He followed up Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which came out in 1998 in Britain, but mm-hmm. in America in 1999, uh, with Snatch, which is basically Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrels Two. It's it, Two Smoking Barrels Two. Mm-hmm. It's the same basic structure, slightly different characters and story. Some of the cast returns, some doesn't. I would argue Snatch is a little tighter. 
A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, if the, maybe it's the better of the two movies, but they're clearly notable because uh, he was able to lock, stock, and two smoking barrels was mostly uh, unknown in America, especially uh, British actors. Mm. Uh, Snatch was notable because they got a big Hollywood movie star, Brad Pitt, is in it, mm-hmm. and he, the joke is that he he plays. I think he's from the North Country. And no, he's, accent, he's a gypsy, or is it? He's uh, his accent is so thick, no one can understand. Yeah, him. yeah. Uh, that was followed two mm. years later. Uh, because Guy Ritchie uh, became such a celebrity filmmaker after those two movies, uh, he started dating and didn't he marry Madonna? Yeah, yeah. So he had, his next movie was a Madonna movie, and he joked that he was able to get her. <laughs> like, right? How'd you get Madonna? Well, she was available. Uh, well, it's a bizarre project. I'm going to get Madonna, and I'm going to remake a Lena Vertmuller film. Right. Uh, Lena Vertmuller uh, is one of the very few female directors ever to be nominated for Best Director, and she was nominated for a film by Swept Aw- called Swept Away by an Unusual Destiny in the Blue Sea of August, or as it is commonly truncated, Swept Away. No, it was... I think it was released in America, Swept Away. Uh, but it is about a uh, very nasty uh, lady socialite mm. uh, who is on a yacht, and she verbally abuses at every opportunity this working-class, communist-minded fisherman. Mm. And then tragedy strikes, and they're both marooned on a deserted island, and now he's the only one who can keep them alive, and he completely subverts the power dynamic. And it has been argued that the film is kind of sexist. <laughs> Uh, It's certainly weird and raises a lot of questions, and Mm. for whatever reason, by the time that got filtered into Guy Ritchie's version, Mm. that movie sucks. (laughs) You know what? I've managed to steer around it, despite how bad it... It it has a reputation as one of the worst films of the 2000s, like that decade. Uh Um, And I I can't refute that. I've seen clips and it looks bad. I can refute that. It's not... Mm. It wouldn't be in the bottom ten. It's not good. All right. Like, the first half is just clumsy and awkward, Mm. bad, screwball storytelling. Then it gets really ugly and misogynistic. And then, after all of that, it tries to turn into, like, this kind of tragic Harlequin romance thing. (laughs) And I just... None of it works. Like, none of it makes any sense. Everything is terrible. uh, It's it's, it's not, like, as baffling as some of the other mm. crap that got made in the last 20 years, but you watch it and it's just like, yeah, this was a really bad idea and this should not have, this should not have been a thing. I hear this film and Gili mentioned at the same breath a mm. lot. Just well, funnily really... enough, I've never seen Gili. Oh, I have seen, I've seen Gili multiple times. Oh. Gili is one of those bad movies that's like fascinatingly bad. Like it has just bonkers dialogue mm. and weird characters and uh. you're kind of drawn in by how strangely bad the movie is, even though it's, quite bad. Uh, Guy Ritchie followed up Swept Away by going back to his roots. He did another, he had two Mm. bloke movies uh, in a row. He did Revolver, which was basically the same structure as Snatch and Lockstock, except he tried to use it as a meditation on the Kabbalah. <laughs> it's, an, it's been a while since I've seen it. It's an odd flight. I, I admire um, the audacity, but it does not work. Right. Uh, he followed it up with Rock and Rolla, which would actually be one of his better films if it wasn't loaded with gay panic jokes. Uh, there's a lot of gay panic jokes. Um, his characters are always scumbags, yeah. so there's always you know angles of like sexism or homophobia, or especially in this new one, racism. Yeah. Um, but it, it's because these are clearly about like sort of asshole characters, and because it's not like an obsession of his throughout his filmography. You can tell that he's trying to 
put his asshole characters in uncomfortable situations to make them look bad. Kind and of, but at the same time, you are no, just expecting us to be yeah. entertained by it. And in and, and Rock and Rolla, I think, the Gerard Butler character is the one who like, really freaks out that one of his buddies is gay. And uh, I think uh, it doesn't let him off the hook in that movie. Yeah. And, and it, the film itself doesn't feel any animosity toward the gay character for being gay. No, no, that's true. Tom Hardy yeah. plays the gay <clears throat> character. He's actually really good in it. Yeah. Um, everyone's good in it. I find some of the humor unfunny, I guess, if that's what it uh, that, that's, down to. That's totally fair. Um, he followed it up with Sherlock Holmes, which was <coughs> actually a pretty okay Sherlock Holmes movie. The idea was, let's do Sherlock Holmes the Guy Ritchie way. Let's mm. show the British you know, streets of the turn of the century as being full of street-level crime and eccentric characters of which Sherlock Holmes is a part. And, and he's like kind of this tough bruiser dude who's in like cage matches and stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm like, you know what? I've seen worse Sherlock Holmes that's it's, fine. It's not a bad idea. The Sherlock Holmes movies, because he did them both one right after the other, yeah. and his other one was called A Game of Shadows. Mm, which had Jared and, Harris as Moriarty. Good casting. Good casting. I, I wish it had been a, like a wittier film. There's no there's no wit or thought to like these movies. Not especially. No, like, like the they're, com- they're, the, they're the, all the, fist. And the plots are complicated, mm, but only so mm, that Holmes can figure them out, not because yeah, there's any intellect going into them. Not, not, not to be crass, but they're all dick and no brain. And yeah. uh, and there, there's a lot of uh, eroticism between Holmes and Watson, which they played up in the sequel because the fans liked it. But... Those movies are fun while you're watching them, and as soon as they're over, it's like it's like you spat the gum out and you're done. Yeah, they're not really a meal. No, no. It's Game of Shadows, in particular, the only thing I remember from Game of Shadows is mm. there's a pretty clever conclusion where Holmes oh, the, the, they they think out the fight without having it. Yeah, yeah. Holmes and Watson. It's like uh, Holmes and Moriarty. Like they're going to confront each other and they're going to fight to the death, and they're both just thinking out each other's moves to the point where it just becomes a staring contest. Yeah, like, yeah. So like, why well, could I, would you do all of these things? Well, it's I'll like, just kill you. But well, then, when we do these things, well, then, then I'll kill yeah, you. Yeah, this fight, well, and then if I, you would, you did this left, and I would do a block, and no, oh, but then we die in that scenario too. So we do this and this, and then well, we die in that scenario too. It's like they're thinking out all the chess matches, and they're both so brilliant they would just predict that. So it's, it's like that's well, clever. I guess we'll both die, and they just jump off a cliff together. It's, so it's good. pretty funny. That's good. Um, he was followed up four years later mm-hmm. with a movie I'm not sure anyone actually asked for, but it turned out really good. The Man from Uncle. It turned out. Good. No, it's really really grown on me over time. The Man from Uncle was a 1960s uh, spy show Mm. about an American secret agent and a Russian secret agent who had to team up during the Cold War. Mm. A pretty bold idea at the time. Uh, Guy Ritchie took it and made it into this incredibly homoerotic love bromance between uh, Henry Cavill and Army Hammer in which it's all about fashion and looking mm. good and if they happen to save the day so be it and I, mean, I love every second of it Henry Cavill is so damn good in that movie yeah, uh, there's a, a scene where uh, he the villain of the picture gets the drop on him and by poisoning him like he's in his suit and he's looking like a million bucks and he's standing in this nice posh living room and they put poison in his martini so he's like drink or, or it's like a drug in his martini yeah. and he drinks it and he's like Oh my goodness! And he's he's totally calm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like stagger. This he's isn't not, his first poisoning. Yeah, he's like, he's, okay, I've I've taken a drug. I know exactly what this is. I'm gonna start losing my conscience. He lays down on a couch. He gets a pillow. I'm gonna make myself comfortable as I pass out. Could you just not hit me too hard when I wake up? Thank you. It's like he's <laughs> totally laid back as he's passing out from being so drugged. damn good. Yeah, yeah. So damn good. Um, he followed that up with, uh, you remember how he Guy Ritchie'd Sherlock Holmes? Mm. They decided to let him Guy Ritchie King Arthur. 
This one didn't work. Oh, golly, was that an awful film. King uh, Arthur, Legend of the Sword. King, yeah, uh, Charlie Hunnam played King Arthur, and yeah, they just bloked it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ended with... Uh, this sums up the movie, and this is the last scene of the movie, and it's not a spoiler, because it's King Arthur. Yeah. Uh, but it's... It's about sort of the King Arthur origin story and how he found Excalibur. Guess who's guarding Excalibur? David Beckham is guarding Excalibur in that movie. Like a David Beckham cameo. Like, oi, you want to try pulling the sword out? It's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And he pulls the sword out. Oi, what the hell? Like a, Good blocking, David Beckham. Yeah. <laughs> David Beckham, not an actor. But he's guarding Excalibur. And yeah. there's like this line of blokes trying to pull the sword out. But at the very end, he's he's gathered all his, his retinue as his... His merry men, as it were, and uh, it's like, and they're all just sort of sitting around drinking big steins of beer, and he like whips a, a cloth off off of the round table. It's like, oh, there's King Arthur. There's his round table. It's like, well, oh, great. What is it? Oh, it's a table. You sit at it. Cut to credits. <laughs> I don't even remember. The thing yeah, I it's like the, the round table. Like it, it's supposed to be the whole idea of the round table is it's round. Nobody's sitting at the head of the table. They're all equal. Yeah, there's actually a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for for a society which mm. isn't ruled specifically by just one person. It's, mm. it's about like, a, it's, a utopian it, ideal. Yeah, it's, it's this egalitarian notion, and all yeah. these blokes are like, "Oh, it's a table. You sit at it. What's it for? I don't know. You sit at a table and drink beers, <laughs> and never nights." That's such a stupid... And then, and then there's, like, elephant monsters and squid, oh, mon- squid witches. And- I'm fine with there being magic in a King Arthur movie. I'm totally fine with that. Just, Here's my problem with that... It's handled really weird, though, with the attitude. Here's my problem with that King Arthur movie. Mm-hmm. The only way a movie could have more montages is if a movie was just a montage. Like, the man with the movie <laughs> camera is, like, the only movie I've seen. It's like, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword is just... A montage and then a very thin narrative thread to get you to the next montage. Mm-hmm. There are trading montages. There are heist montages. Yeah. They're fighting. Every single thing is a montage to the extent that you have no connection to anything. It sucks. And then even Aladdin. Well, Disney made Aladdin and they just needed a guy on set to push things around. It, it, with, the directors there, are so insignificant to those pictures. Th- there's two films in Guy Ritchie's canon where if you watched them, you would have no idea Guy Ritchie did it. Mm-hmm. One of them is swept away. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the hell. Like, there's nothing of Guy Ritchie in that movie. And then, <clears throat> yeah, Aladdin, which is competent and fine. Like, the cast is, like, Mana Masood is mm. really, really good as Aladdin. Oh, Will Smith is fine as the genie. Mm. There's a couple of good bits. Um, but it's basically just baseline mm. competent. And now he's back with uh, with more blokes. No, more blokes. He's going back yeah. to a little bit back in his element so with The Gentleman, which is... Another twisty turny action crime comedy. I think working on some of those big pictures gave him a better eye for like slick production design. Mm. So even though this is relatively smaller budget, this feels a lot smoother mm. than any of his films have been in the past. And I'm even including stuff like uh, yeah. King Arthur and and, yeah, and big Man from Uncle, stuff. like his yeah. bigger budget stuff. Yeah, there's, there's uh, a certain and, there's a certain chill I think to mm. this one. Like he's not he's not trying to prove as much. Yeah, he's yeah. just doing it now. And, he and feels he's, very confident. He's, yeah, he's doing it with a lot of confidence. I think he kind of has a good ear for what he's good at, and he just sort of likes to roll around in his own dialogue. And it's set up in a really complicated way, and that's kind of unnecessarily complicated, but actually makes it pretty entertaining. It starts with Hugh Grant. Playing against type, beautifully against type, as this kind of He's having fun. scumbag paparazzo character who has an idea to 
quote, quote, pitch a movie kind of like a fake movie to a Charlie Hunnam character, Charlie Hunnam's home. Except, and except the movie that he's pitching is, is the recent spate of crimes committed by Charlie Hunnam and his boss Matthew McConaughey, mm-hmm. and this isn't so much a pitch for a movie as, as it's a as blackmail, an, an elaborate scheme. blackmail like scheme, which doesn't become clear until like a little ways into the movie. Not that far. It's uh, pretty. You figure it out. Yeah, pretty fast. He, he's he's pretty straightforward. But uh, yeah, Hugh, so Hugh, Hugh Grant is great. Charlie mm-hmm. Hunnam is great, and yeah, we get yeah, to see nice all to see of the, Charlie Hunnam being great. So he's mm-hmm. one of those actors who was asked to be just generic hero, mm-hmm. like. King Arthur. But he has more personality. He has more than personality that, yeah. as a kook. Like, he's mm. fun. He plays an OCD uh, consigliere. You know, mm. he's, he's uh, Robert Duvall from The Godfather. He's not in charge of anything, but he's in charge of getting the guy in charge whatever he wants. Yeah. So know, he's the, one who really runs things, and, really. He just doesn't make the decisions. And the guy in charge is Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey has this wonderful montage about how he's become wealthy in, in England, an American wealthy in England, by figuring out the only possible way he can grow huge amounts of weed mm. somewhere on, in the British countryside. And kudos kudos mm. to Guy Ritchie mm. when he, For, he's talking about like how clever the scheme is, and I'm like, all right. And then they tell the scheme, and I'm just like, on a movie level, that's pretty clever. That's pretty clever. That probably like it's, wouldn't it's work in real life. It's practical in real life. No, but, yeah. but like you think about it, it's just like, mm. you know what? I haven't seen that in a film. So yeah. kudos. That's that's um. not the worst idea. <laughs> um, so he has made uh, billions of dollars or millions of dollars mm. selling tons and tons of weed. And now he wants to sell his business. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, a whole bunch of people want his business. There's yeah, well, a uh, there, there's a, the tabloid owner who wants revenge on him because he slighted him at a party once. And that's uh, played by Eddie Marsan, an actor I really like he's always good um there's also uh the local triads who are represented by a young upstart played by henry golding who is excellent he's always good uh when he appeared on when he first appears on screen he sort of like gets out of a, a car and he's wearing a suit and he looks like a million bucks yeah uh, the woman sitting next to me just went mm, mm, mm. henry like, golding Hen- and- yeah henry golding is is like romance book cover good looking like I'm, he's uh, he's so handsome it's unfair it's so weird uh-huh. that henry golding wasn't an actor until last year <laughs> henry golding was some i don't know what what else we knew him from tv or something i don't know and then he was in a simple favor and he was in crazy rich agents within like a month of each other yeah. they're both great movies and, he's and he plays great in two both di- different yeah. totally different types of characters and in those he's two super movies. suave yeah. and charming and let me tell you something right now hmm. when Daniel Craig leaves Bond after the end of this movie. <laughs> Henry Golding. I am dead oh, fucking serious. He'd be awesome he would James be Bond. great. Yeah, yeah. He'd be really great. He's young, too. He's only, like, in his early 30s. Yeah, um, you'd have him for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not like, you know, oh, he's 45, we'll have him for three movies. Like, mm. no, 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 no. You could get Henry Golding, like, a seven-film contract. Mm. And I highly recommend you do, because although he isn't, like, selling tickets right now, he would totally sell tickets as Bond. Dude, yeah, everyone yeah. be like, dude, that guy's cool. Like, <laughs> you, know, you get a couple of racist assholes complaining, but then after they see him, they'd be like, yeah, okay, he's Bond. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, uh, meanwhile, also in this movie, uh, there's also a a like a boxing coach played by Colin Farrell, who it turns I almost forgot about that whole. Thread. It's a Gosh, weird it's subplot like, because it only kind of connects. Mm-hmm. It turns out that the the local toughs that he's been coaching got together and stole a whole bunch of weed from Matthew McConaughey and now in order to save their lives he agrees to do some dirty work for them. Yeah, yeah. Just, which is very reasonable. And, and I love his character because he's tough, he's really down to earth but he's actually, he's like a big brother type who's trying to uh, 
rehabilitate all of the people at his gym. Yeah. So when he hears they commit a crime, it's like they fell off the wagon. It's like, no, you idiot. Okay, well, I know the world of crime because that was my past, so mm-hmm. I, I have to do these things. Totally honest mm-hmm. character in this world of complete scumbags. I love the scene in this movie where he goes to Charlie Hunnam mm-hmm. and he just flat out says, okay, my boy stole your weed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're young. They're stupid. I'm trying to get them to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can give you all the weed back. I can rec- I can pay your money back. I cannot pay you back for the inconvenience. I owe you, a f- I owe you like two favors. And, 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 and Charlie Hunnam's like, you know how this works. Okay, good. We're good. Yeah. And, and it's the, kind of comforting that they're yeah. not at odds. <laughs> I like when, like, rules and, like, societies and organizations, when there are rules and those rules are respected. Yeah. yeah. When they're just, it's not, because you see this in const- constantly in crime movies where, like, you know, oh, there are rules to how these things go. And then the villain is always the guy who breaks all those rules and mm-hmm. immediately like, no, no, we, just, we, we follow those rules. Yeah. <laughs> we do, those are rules for a reason. We all, we all follow those. If you break them, we will fuck you up. Mm-hmm. And if you don't break them, fine. <laughs> We're all happy. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's about. No one wants to kill everybody. We just do if we have to. Oh, and, and there's also the Jewish mafia guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Played by um, Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong. Uh, Jeremy Strong, who... I th- was he in um, Serenity with Matthew McConaughey? He was. He was. He was the. He was, he was the lawyer. lawyer. The, the yeah. The lawyer. The NPC. Yeah. He um, he apparently uh, is like a big deal on that show Succession, okay. which I know a lot of people are really obsessed with. So he's like mm. starting to show up in more and more mm. uh, bigger movies. But he's been around for a while. Mm. He played Lee Harvey Oswald in that movie Parkland. <laughs> I never saw Parkland. But. It's not great, but oh, okay. he just thought it was amusing that he had such a like a noteworthy role. So yeah, all of these characters uh, are because of the robbery. Everything's sort of set off in this way. The, the triads are trying to move in on Matthew McConaughey's turf. Matthew McConaughey has to reassert his dominance uh, during this period of his retirement. He wants to retire with his wife, who's played by uh, the actress from Downton Abbey. Michelle uh, Dockery. Michelle Dockery, who looks so much like Gemma Arterton, it's it's distracting. Mm-hmm. She was like a slightly gothy Gemma Arterton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gemma Arterton, who, of course, was in Rockarola. Um Yeah, so this movie... Is I, and I'm just going to say it right now. Mm. Guy Ritchie mostly makes one movie. <laughs> I think we can agree with this. Yeah. He makes it, people accuse uh, Martin Scorsese of that all the time. Oh, he makes the same movie over again. Martin Scorsese actually doesn't. Martin Scorsese makes <laughs> one of those like every eight years, and in between <laughs> makes a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah, yeah. Guy Ritchie mostly makes this movie, and then occasionally does this movie, but with a pulp hero, mm. and then twice has done something completely different. Well, he'll he'll do some. He'll do like a big studio picture, so he can like fund a couple of these. But the big studio picture yeah. is almost always a Guy Ritchie movie, but with Sherlock Holmes, mm. or, or a Guy Ritchie movie with with King, King Arthur. Yeah, Aladdin was different. I'll give you that swept away was different i'll give you that but pretty much he does this yeah they're all pretty similar and for the most part he does them pretty well Mm -hmm. like he understands what makes this work he understands how to keep tension going he understands the careful application of style in order to keep familiar elements exciting Mm -hmm. here there are bits that i like there are characters that i like there are scenes that i like but I feel like he's going back to the well, and the only thing he can think of is, I can make this really interesting if I use the framing device of pitching the movie. Mm-hmm. 
and that's it. I feel like that's kind of all he's got. Well, it's just got pitching the movie as I, as Hugh Grant would do it, and that yeah. works to an extent. But at the end of the movie, I'm like, what did I get out of that? I agree with you that he does make the same kinds of movies over and over again, and I feel like he's just been trying to make something like one particular type of thing, and he's just going to keep trying until he hits what mm. like it's it's like. Um, it's like kabuki theater. He's just trying to like attain perfection just by trying and trying again. I was going to go with Jiro um, Dreams of Sushi. There you go. Where if you just, make the same piece of sushi every single day, a hundred times a day for eighty years, eventually you get it right. So I'm looking over his filmography, and I am seeing him slowly and steadily improving. I mean, there's some. I think Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels kind of excels because of its shabbiness. Sure. But you look in some of these ones in the middle, things like uh, Rock and Rolla. It's like. It's fine, but you're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he almost hits it with the gentleman. Like he, he's he's almost. He, what do you think he's trying to hit though? Just mm. making a pretty fun ensemble crime movie. Yeah, like making a pretty fun ensemble crime movie. Is that this really time, worth that the, much effort? The ensemble's really good. They're all very funny. It's funny throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of racist sometimes. Kind of kind of racist. Again, I don't think the film is racist. I think the characters are. And but I, we I are think, expected to. La- I got to tell you something. The audience yeah. I saw this with yeah. thought all the racist jokes were hilarious. Well, you're not supposed to laugh at the racist I think, jokes. but they totally did, and it was oh. kind of awkward. Oh, well, that is awkward. Yeah. Like, uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant has, like, he throws out some epithets, and you can, you, there's, like, an, I think a reaction shot of Charlie Hunnam who kind of, like, winces a little bit. Like, so, seriously? Yeah. It's like, you're going to use that term to describe an Asian person? And, yeah. Uh, well, the audience uh, thought it was great. And I got to mm, tell you something, mm. I was really uncomfortable in that room. Yeah, and... and yeah. I, think it's I feel like Guy Ritchie watched Pulp Fiction, and that's what he's going for. He wants to make Pulp Fiction, and a lot of his film, all of his crimes films, feel like they should have come out in the 1990s, including The Gentleman. It has a very 90s feel, that kind of freewheeling scumbag uh, scuzz cinema was really big in the, the mid to late 90s, uh, and yeah, I feel like he, he kind of hits it all. And most importantly. I can follow it. I knew exactly who all the characters were. I knew exactly where they were going and what they were going for in every given scene. I was never sort of blindsided by some sort of plot reveal or some forgotten character that sort of was forgotten about until the end. So Guy Ritchie so I feel like really he's... lowered your bar, and now by mm-hmm. he meeting the basic standard by which most other movies <laughs> would hit mediocrity. I feel like a lot of these movies that try for these sort of complicated plots are, you know, they're, they're doing a really complicated juggling act, and so few get it right. And I feel like the gentleman does. That's not to say it's a great film. Okay. Um... I think the, he's the, done better. I just feel uh, like I feel like uh, you know, rock and roll has mm. more energy than this. It was more propulsive. Mm. Lost Stock and Two Smoking Barrels felt like he had something to prove. Uh, Snatch felt like someone who had finally gotten all the tools they needed to tell this sort of thing and just really wanted to do a really good, crisp job of it. Even Revolver. Mm. Revolver has ideas. They're not handled well, mm. but the idea of taking this really overcomplicated ensemble crime story and using it to approach something vaguely akin to Zen. There's an ambition there. I appreciate it. Oh I don't God. really see an ambition here, other than let's all be sexy in our clothes. Well, uh, first of all, don't knock a movie where a bunch of people are sexy in their clothes. Oh, oh no, but, no, 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 no. Uh, he I made get the man it. from Uncle selling. for good sake. No, no, no. And, and that's a selling point. That could I'm have no dialogue, and it would be good. Um, yeah. I, I, if you look at the Matthew McConaughey character, it's about somebody who's trying to retire his empire, but has to prove he's still got it. And I see that as sort of uh, a stand-in for Guy Ritchie. Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's just sort of, sort of so who does, trying who, to prove that he still has it, and lo, he does. Who does so, Hugh Grant represent as someone who is pitching a movie about Guy Ritchie <laughs> to Guy Ritchie? 
basically, yeah. kind and, of. And there was and there was even a, a reference to uh, Man from Uncle. Mm. So it's like this weird meta thing. But like seriously, who does who does Rick Hugh Grant represent in that scenario? If the I, I, guy he's pitching a movie about is Guy Ritchie, uh, the studio itself, or okay. or Guy Ritchie's own sort of tendency to sell out from time to time, <laughs> <laughs> different facets of Guy. Yeah, Ritchie. yeah. You know what? So, That's interesting. <laughs> okay, so that, that was my that, that was my read of of this film. I'm not super convinced yeah. that there's anything meaningful to say about that. But yeah, okay. I, no, I really I'm, wasn't seeing it as Matthew. I saw it as Hugh Grant mm-hmm. was Guy Ritchie is being kind of desperate and just really needed to make a quick buck by going back to the well. <laughs> just like I'm going to pitch it. It's going to be slightly different yeah. this time. You'll love it. Well, he's like, I'm going to retire with my pretty wife, who is Madonna in real life. It's like, well, not anymore. Well, no, but you know, I could see it there. You know? Yeah, no, I'm just saying. But like, yeah, yeah, no, no. I was looking at it as Hugh Grant was Guy Ritchie, but if Matthew McConaughey is Guy Ritchie, <laughs> it's a little bit more interesting. I'll <laughs> yeah, give you that. There, there, right. I, I think there is something here, and and it is just sort of an enjoyable little piece of fluff. Yeah, it's, it's um, certainly reasonably entertaining. It just the, didn't really stick with me. The racist humor is not something I was laughing at. I don't think it uh, sinks the film. I don't think it is a racist film, but it is about racist characters who don't who do get their comeuppance. So, um, to an extent, you are expected to be amused by their shenanigans. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, a lot of a lot of characters. A lot of the characters are really hateful. Yeah. I saw this a lot in the crime films of the '90s, where a lot of the characters were racist or hateful. And that was just sort of supposed to be part of their characters. Um, the problem with that, my, though, is my, that... My own boss, Quentin yeah. Tarantino, made a film called Reservoir Dogs in 1992, mm-hmm. which sort of kicked off a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. No, and, I know. Uh, and there's... There, the one part that I think a lot of people wince at is where the Steve Buscemi character says the N-word kind of out of nowhere in one scene. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, these guys are just sort of sort of dicks. Yeah. Well, here's here's oh. what I'll say about that because there's there's two mm. levels on which we can criticize that. Mm. There's the level of the text mm. in which case, yes, these are largely bad, ignorant, criminal, mm. unpleasant people. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll give you that. It doesn't shock me that they would say ugly things. On the other hand, those ugly things are meant to entertain me. The audience. Hmm. They're not there for them. Mm-hmm. They exist only for the sake of the audience. <clears throat> I, the audience, am mostly just going, well, now I don't care if you live or die, basically. Like, <laughs> you're fiction- like, you're a person, I'd care if you lived or died, but, like, you're not. You're a fictional creation, and it's sort of like in a slasher movie, mm-hmm. you know, where someone does something that's like a total dick move, and now you're just like, well, now I can't wait for you to die. Mm. You know, like, oh, this per- you know, th- th- Steve stole my job. Mm. You know, stole my promotion at work. Well, I know you're about to all get, like, stuck in a target while, like, mermen are attacking you or some shit. (laughs) And now I know Steve, I know I know I really want Steve to die. Like, that's the language of cinema that you've Mm. taught me. So when that happens in a movie, I want those people to die. Like, Mm. that's... You expect that to happen. Yeah, something like that. And I just, yeah, on some level, expecting audiences to be entertained by something that is not just in poor taste, but arguably regressive. Mm. Again, I'm not trying to make this all political or whatever like that. I find it in poor taste. Okay. And I think sort of normalizing that as entertainment can have repercussions. Yeah, Maybe yeah. not in one film, but if it's in a lot of films, yeah. there's a lot of normalization that occurs there. And I think that's worth criticizing, even though the movie itself that it's in, it makes sense in context, mm. and there's entertainment value. Okay. Anyway. Uh, eh, may, long, may, complicated, critical analysis conversation. May, maybe I have a bad sense of humor, but, uh, which is entirely possible. Well, I laugh there, at strange di- things. There are different but, levels or different contexts. Mm. You're having a different day than I was when you saw it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Although it was in Hollywood at 7 p.m., which is 
horrible. Terrible drop. We, we've talked about this before. We live on the West Side, <sighs> and a lot of the, the screeners, screenings of the big films that critics attend are in the heart of Hollywood at 7 p.m., right when traffic is worst. Yeah. Like, you have to drive for two hours to go, like, 11 miles. It's nuts. It's, it's absurd. Yeah. Anyway, um, mm. so that's a gentleman. Right. Cool. Uh, you saw other films. Tell I saw me other films. Tell me about Last Full Measure. Uh, the Last Full Measure is... Uh, okay, dig this cast. It has hmm. Christopher Plummer. Okay. It has William Hurt. Wow. It has Ed Harris. Wow. It has Samuel L. Jackson. Damn. It has Peter Fonda, the late Peter Fonda. Oh, it's like his last movie. One huh? of his last movies. Wow. okay. Uh, and the star is Sebastian Stan, who was in the Captain America movies. That's a very good cast. Mm-hmm. It's a very good cast. This movie is trash. No! Uh, it is uh, the true story of uh, let's see. Um, let me look up his name because I wanted to, yeah, d- his, to actual do, his actual name. name. Um, William H. Pitzenbarger okay. in the movie is played by uh, Jeremy Irvine, mm-hmm. who was uh, a rescue, uh, an Air Force rescue guy during the Vietnam War, okay. and he was killed in action, okay. uh, saving his friends. Tragic, and uh, he was he was given uh, you know posthumous honors for the sacrifice he did, and he was able to sort of stay and help a lot of people. This movie is about how thirty four later, thirty four years later, uh, the William Hurt character, a, a buddy of his from from Vietnam, all grown up, all yeah. grown yeah, grown up now, is now trying to get him the Medal of Honor. Mm. Right, yeah. Uh, in, which is uh, a much higher honor. Yeah, the high, one, yeah. Of, one of one, one, the, one of the highest honors. Yeah, and about how it was a really difficult legal battle, and they hire uh, the Sebastian Stan character, uh, who's sort of presented as this kind of caddish, uh, opportunistic, Machiavellian type of lawyer who's Ooh. only working on his own career. He might have to, a valuable lesson to learn. Yeah, who has to learn a valuable lesson about the value of giving service and. He goes to each of the character, each of the uh, amazingly cast characters, who clearly they only had for like a day, because mm-hmm. they give like a monologue, and then he moves to the next one, and they give a monologue, and he goes okay. to the next one. And monologue. You know what? That's the same um, structure as Courage Under Fire, <coughs> which is actually a very good movie. Mm. Yeah. And that structure can work, is mm. my point. Um, it's unbelievably sloppy. The writing is very bad. Sebastian Shaw or Sebastian Stan. Sebastian Shaw, Shaw. No, not Sebastian Shaw. <laughs> the X Men villain. Sebastian Stan is awful oh, in no. this movie. He, I, I don't know what character he's playing because he's changing from scene to scene. And in Ooh. some cases, some scenes he's like really vulnerable around these guys, but in the same scene he'll just turn around and be kind of a dick and, and it just he doesn't have any kind of <laughs> consistent character through line. He could have been like directed in two different ways and two different takes were cut together. Wow. Uh, whatever it is, he gives a quite a bad performance. Here's here's my question based on that synopsis. And again, oh. I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the stakes are kind of stupidly low because it sounds to me uh. like here's a guy who was respected and honored as a war hero, and now decades later we want him to be more respected yeah, and honored. What's standing in their way? Is there like someone who's just like, no, he was really a monster. Yeah, like there's there. Well, and that's what I kept expecting to happen. It's like, why has he not been awarded this posthumous honor? Somebody's asked Ooh. for it and they kept saying, they've been saying no for 30 years. And I think it's because it's such a trifling request. Nobody cares. Well, I mean, I mean, listen, everybody you who... Can, you can argue that he deserves it, but he, he was honored. He deserved it. If he, it, he, was, if he oh, was never yeah. honored. 
Well, and if he was I, never honored, I would be like, okay. He, say, he saved a lot of people. His friends recognized him. The army recognized him. He's gotten the honors, you know, going out of your way for decades to get him, like, another medal. It seems like such a waste of time. No, I appreciate... Again, again, I haven't seen the movie, yeah. but I appreciate that his friends cared for, respected, appreciated him and his sacrifice so much that they wanted mm. to do this. It just doesn't sound like a compelling narrative. It's not a compelling drama. And, the, like, the one ticking clock is Christopher Plummer plays the fallen soldier's dad. Oh, and Diane, La- Diane Ladd plays his mom. So oh, there's shit. A, this is awesome cast. That's amazing. So Christopher Plummer and Diane Ladd. Uh, Christopher Plummer is dying of cancer, the Christopher okay. Plummer character. So we got to get that medal so it's like we got Yeah, we got to get the medal before he, before he dies. Yeah, because that's the one thing that could cure him. I kept expecting, like, some sort of shoe to drop. Like, Pitsenbarger, it turns out, like, had committed some sort of horrible crime. And was covering yeah. it up and like the extra layer of attention mm. might have or, revealed. Or, or he actually was a, quite a good war hero, but before going into the war, he had like murdered four civilians well, in a fight. I, I brought up you know? I brought up Courage Under Fire, which is mm. a movie I think most people have completely forgotten about, but is really really good. It's a pretty uh, good movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Denzel Washington plays um, a a military uh, investigator who is asked to investigate whether a helicopter pilot played mm. by Meg Ryan deserved posthumously um, basically, I don't think literally the Medal of Honor but some huge honor that no one had ever right. stepped about to a woman before but they want to make sure that she actually deserved it so that there's no hint of scandal when they present it it would be a great thing if they there's did no, but, well there's no hint of scandal also uh, well, but in that one the idea is they talk to everyone around mm-hmm. her and their stories don't match up yeah, there's, and there's, one there's, of them kind says, of a, there's a Rashomon element to that movie yeah. and, and also there's uh, the angle of sexism it's about are we going to give this honor to a female soldier mm-hmm. which like has never happened and, before and uh, Whereas not all the stories match up, and mm. you could argue that, okay, it was a traumatic experience, and everyone remembers everything the same way. Mm. One person says she was a coward. Yeah. And now we actually do have to li- seriously investigate every single thing that happened. And so mm. there's a lot on the line there. There's a person's reputation. There's <clears throat> people undergoing post-traumatic stress who might actually... You know, there's a ton yeah. going on in that movie. It's really good. Yeah. Lou Diamond Phillips should have been Oscar-nominated in that movie. He's he was, great he was that really good. That's his best role ever. Um, but yeah, there's stuff at stake. There's stuff on the, on the line. Mm. Doesn't sound like that. There's, the, yeah, there's nothing on the line here. Okay, and and we do get to see sort of, you know, he he saved my life, and here's who I am now, and I'm glad I'm alive. And uh, Peter Fonda is really good. He plays the guy who can't go out during the day because his his. Uh, Post traumatic stress is just too great. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson has like bullets in his body, and he had a secret that he was kind of keeping. And we get to see flashbacks to the actual battle in Vietnam, uh, and sort sort of the horrible things they had to do, like they had to pull dead bodies on top of themselves and play dead so people wouldn't kill them. That that's got to cause a, a little bit of post traumatic yeah. stress. Every once in a uh, while, you remember that like yeah. you're never going to see this actor in a new role again. And I just remember, it just suddenly hit me about Peter Fonda. Yeah. He's <laughs> such a good actor. He's so he was good. a really good actor. Uh-huh. God damn, Yulee's Gold was good. This this movie, it it's really cheap. It, there's not a lot of stakes. The drama is bad. The central performance is bad, and it feels like a greeting card. Mm. It feels like a Hallmark movie. Like it it has that soft edges, and it's just about. Sort of giving a little oorah to the military rather than telling any kind of story. Damn. Yeah, I, I was ex- excited. It's like, oh, and look, there's an Ed Harris, and there's a Samuel L. Jackson, and I'm excited to see them. And you know, they're they're doing what they can with this really corny ass dialogue. Well, I think but it goes to show you that like movies are more than the sum of their parts. Like, absolutely, you yeah. think to yourself, like, wow, what a great cast. Yeah, a lot of movies are great casts. 
suck. Mm. And that can be a ton of different factors. It could be bad direction. It could be studio Mm. notes. It could be uh, a script that got rewritten into oblivion. It could just be bad timing or subject matter that doesn't fit or someone was having a bad day. I don't know. Shit happens. And Mm. yeah, this sucks. That's a damn shame what that is. It, it's uh, soldiers are great, and well, the military yeah. is great. And this guy was brave. Okay, well, I, I feel like uh, Danny DeVito in Wiener Dog, where uh, the student is like <laughs> describing a character, and he's like, "There's no story there." Yeah, it's this guy, and he's got like he can shoot stinging foam into your eyes, or whatever, whatever the pitch yeah. was. It was like a superhero thing. Yeah. And, and he's like, and, what happens? What, who, yeah. What's the conflict? What, what does what's he the, do? How does he feel about that? Like, none of that has this kid hasn't thought. It's like, well, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'll just figure it out. I just want uh-huh. to do the character. And you know what? That I, kid, there's all I, this. I have all this myth you don't mm. understand. Yeah, and he, I feel what, like they have a lot of myth and no substance. Like yeah. they haven't really thought out what, what kind of story they wanted to well, tell. Well, speaking of stories with lots of substance, mm. uh, tell me about what David Lynch has been up to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, so embarrassed I didn't see this because it's technically uh, a short film. I should have been able to have the time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 17 minutes long. Uh, David Lynch had a birthday recently. Yeah. Uh, he was born on the, the 20th of January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's 73 now. Yeah. And to celebrate, uh, Netflix, kind of out of the blue, as is their want, released a short film he made a couple of years ago. And screened at Sundance, but hasn't been released to the public. Oh, I didn't realize it had already screened or, or, or Sundance or it can it, it, it had screened. It's at okay. a festival. I actually wasn't yeah. aware of that. Okay. I think, yeah, back in 2017, I think it was at Cannes. Okay. It was like this Cannes-only thing. And now it's it just sort of dropped on Netflix unceremoniously. It's called What Did Jack Do? And uh, David Lynch... It, it premiered at the Foundation Cartier pour l'art contemporain. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's a, it's not, a, not can, but at a French film festival. Yeah, it's it's an art museum in France. Okay, that's where it was. Yeah. Okay. David Lynch uh, plays a detective. This is filmed. Um, it was clearly filmed digitally, but they added some like grain and like strings and scratches to make it look like an old film. He kind of o- overexposes the light a little bit and brings out a lot of the darker blacks and the, the black and white photography to make it look like something like Eraserhead or uh, the or the Elephant Man or the Grandmother, some of his earlier stuff. Mm. And it's still. Eh. God bless David Lynch. He still has the spirit. Uh, David Lynch had, has announced that he's more or less retired. Of course, then he made 18 hours of original footage with the, the Twin Peaks return. Uh, but, yeah, after he made um, Lost Highway, he kind of started to sour on film, which is kind of a pity because Lost Highway is one of the most gorgeously photographed films you've ever seen. I agree, and I think there's uh, a stumbling block in your narrative because he made Straight Story after that. Oh, that's true. He made I Straight think Straight Story, Story was the one. No, I think it was Straight Story and Mulholland Drive. I mean, I well, think but I, Mulholland Drive was a TV thing, so it was, yeah. it was shot a little bit differently. Uh, and he also made Inland Empire, but he did that completely digitally. Well, and Inland Empire uh, is weird, so I'll and, give it <laughs> even by his. Standards. That that's like that was his big experiment. It's like, hey, Laura Dern, are you busy this week? Uh, no, I got nothing going on. Want to come over and film something? What? I don't know. I'll figure it out. And they kind of figured it out together, and they assembled this big three-hour epic weird thing, uh, right. the sort of tribute to actors. It's really quite. I actually really like Inland Empire. Mm. It's the um, one. It's the one uh, David Lynch feature film I haven't seen. I, I recommend it. I need it's, to get around it's, to it. It's kind of hard to get it, through. It's, it just, it's also ugly because it's he's shooting digitally, um, and it's with like early two thousands digital cameras, so it especially doesn't look good. 
but yeah, I, I, he said he's actually said in interviews that uh, film is a dinosaur. He doesn't like shooting on film and waiting for the slow process of development and watching dailies and editing. He was just too impatient for that. He decided to shoot a film digitally, and I think he was kind of done after that. He kind of fell into uh, meditation. Like transcendental meditation became sort of his right. his new thing, and he there's actually a David Lynch Foundation about trying to get transcendental meditation into elementary schools because yeah. he feels that would be really good for kids' brains. Uh, he comes back out of the blue in the year 2020 with a short about himself at a diner inter- as a detective interrogating a talking capuchin monkey named Jack. Mm. Jack is played by Jack Cruz, credited as himself. The monkey speaks with a really kind of interesting special effect where they just superimpose a human mouth over the the monkey's face, mm. but they're able to use like digital technology to match it really close. So when the monkey moves its head, the mouth stays in place. Ooh. It's almost like like clutch cargo advanced. If yeah, they I was do, thinking. If I they ever do a clutch cargo feature film, I hope they use that effect. <laughs> <laughs> and. The dialogue is all very familiar, well-worn noir, noir tropes. Are my pupils dilated? I saw you at the at the station. Well, if my train wasn't late, I wouldn't even be here. It's this very antagonistic relationship, <laughs> and they start talking about, Tell me about the dame. I need to tell you about Tutataban. Tutataban. Tell, she's a chicken. Yes, she is a chicken, and I'm in love. It's like they're almost improvising. <laughs> It sounds like an episode of Space Coast Coast to Coast. It's a li- it feels a little bit Space Coast Coast to Coast. I, I think David Lynch has gotten a little kooky uh, <laughs> as he's aged. He's always been kooky. He's always been. You know, I mean, like he, he has like a little bit more of a sense of humor. So I think we're supposed to laugh at this a little more. Did you ever? If you uh, go back and read some of the things that he always wanted to do, you can tell that he's always wanted to do something a little bit more comedic. Yeah, that is for David Lynch. Something that's funny to him. Yeah. Um, oh, I forgot the actual title. I think it was Dreams of the Bovine. Um, um, oh yeah, he wanted to do a movie about cows that had been turned into people, and they just yeah. sit on a porch chewing their cut all day and just watch traffic go by. And he thought that was the funniest thing in the world. He did a movie. I'm trying to remember what the hell it was called. He did a short film I saw once mm. that was about like a Frenchman showing oh, was, up at a cattle ranch. It's called The Cowboy and the Frenchman. The Cowboy and the Frenchman, and it was just Harry Dean Stanton mm. as and a cowboy and a, and a French guy. Mm. And it, half the damn thing was this French guy who looks obviously French. He's got like the striped shirt. shirt and the beret. He's got baguettes. Yeah. And it's just him like taking stuff out of his like suitcase, and it's mm. all French stuff. Mm. And it's just Harry Dean Stanton going, the hell? So he takes out a baguette. <laughs> the hell? Uh-huh. Takes out a little miniature Eiffel Tower. Mm. The hell? Like, that's the whole movie. A, pl- a plate of escargot. It's yeah. like another scene at the end, but that's it. That's mm. the majority of the short. David Lynch just thinks that's really, really, mm. really funny. So I think to David Lynch, this is a comedy. Mm. Uh, and I laughed it, yeah. it, cause, just because it's so wonderfully absurd. And yeah, eventually they chase a chicken off stage and yeah, exit pursued by a chicken. And that's, that's the end of the short. David Lynch has always, with the exception of Dune, has always worked in his own brain. And I've always admired that about David Lynch. Well, Strange Story is based on a true story. I I guess that was a studio film as well. But that Mm -hmm. feels so much like a David Lynch joke. It's so odd because it's seriously like the idea, if you've never seen Straight Story, Mm -hmm. um, 
You should. It's great. Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. uh, is in it, but he plays the brother of Richard Farnsworth. Richard Farnsworth is a really old man. He's been mm-hmm. estranged from his brother, Harry Dean Stanton, for many, many decades. They haven't spoken. Mm-hmm. And then he finds out his brother is dying, and he decides to go see him, but he can't have a license because he's old and infirm. Mm-hmm. So he decides to take his riding mower, which goes at like five miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Across That's multiple state lines, <laughs> and it's just about him encountering people on his journey. It's just this really slow-moving road picture, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's a Disney film. It's rated G. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it it, it had you you can imagine in your head like I don't know like John Lee Hancock or uh, Sean Levy mm-hmm. making that movie with. I don't know. Little fart jokes and throwing Which, bottles. Yeah, and, you yeah. just imagine some old craggy actor mm-hmm. who's like got a couple of like Tommy Lee Jones, mm-hmm. like doing that or something. Maybe that Tommy Lee Jones is a bad example, but like you know, somebody's <laughs> some, James Garner. James Garner could yeah. have done that like back a few years before he died, mm-hmm. and it would have been kind of funny, and it would have been pretty harmless, and there'd be fart jokes. And mm-hmm. David Lynch just did it as this really dry character piece, and it's great. Yeah, yeah. Um. But, I'm uh, bummed that I missed this. And I know it's still available. I need to just catch up, get around to it. It's never that that he's never left behind the well of creativity fills me with hope. Yeah. And that uh, when I see this completely bizarre thing with him smoking cigarettes, interrogating a fucking monkey, <laughs> it it's just kind of exhilarating. I really really enjoyed that David Lynch David Lynch shorts are now just sort of. Uh, out there on Netflix for you to discover. Well, and I've been saying this for a while, and we'll mm. talk about it a little bit more next week when we review the Oscar-nominated shorts. Mm. Um, I think more short films should be on Netflix. Absolutely. I think Netflix is a, that yeah. streaming is a really great place mm. for short cinema. People are still making shorts all the time. Some of them are a little more than calling cards or practice for mm. features. Some of them are very beautiful art intended only to be shorts and they don't get seen a lot outside of festivals Mm. and they deserve that. And yeah, it's weird that streaming hasn't latched onto that more. Mm. Uh, And there's another film that you saw that I wholly intend to see. I haven't Mm. had a chance yet, but even if I see it, I can't review it. You can't review it because Mm -hmm. one of the stars is my teammate on the movie trivia showdown and we're quite good friends. (laughs) Okay. So I don't, I think it would, I think it would at least appear to be a conflict of interest and I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, So tell me about the new Mm -hmm. Richard Stanley horror film, the color out of space. Uh, Color, uh, color out of space is based on an HP Lovecraft story. A story Um, I thought was unfilmable. For literal reasons, because uh, it's about a, it's about an the original story is about an asteroid that hits like a farm, mm-hmm. and it starts infecting things around it, but it infects them with a color that didn't exist before. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't wrap my head around that. That's one of the great mm-hmm. things about the story is mm-hmm. you can only kind of picture it in your mm-hmm. head, kind of. Mm-hmm. But they made a movie. <laughs> here, here's the color out of space. It's magenta. Um, <laughs> it's it's magenta. It's it's a bright magenta light. Um, uh, I was reminded a lot in, in sort of the, the production design of uh, Stuart Gordon's From Beyond, oh, which, is, which is a very pink movie. If you go back and watch it, there's a lot of pink filters and pink, gooey, fleshy things. Well, especially when like, that, the, that the, shade, the, the yeah. creatures start popping up. Like, we have the whole movie, but when mm, the horrors yeah. occur, it's very fleshy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and great. Well, mm. I was talking to uh, wife Michelle about this, and she's, you know, in addition to being an author, she's an illustrator, and she knows a lot about color theory, mm. and... It turns out that you, you ever see hot pink 
I know you know this, but if you're, if you're listening to the audience, if you ever see hot pink and it looks kind of like weird and vibrant and it kind of messes with your mind a little bit, that's because you're not actually seeing hot pink. Hot pink is a color that exists because your mind can't process what it actually is. It's like mm-hmm. in between shades. So oh, that's why so that's why it pops. That would explain why Richard Stanley chose the shade he did mm-hmm. because it kind of vibrates off the screen. Um Oh, it's, by the way, this was directed by Richard Stanley, who did Hardware and Dust Devil and was the one fired off of the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau um, and was replaced by John Frankenheimer. And there's a documentary based on that, which I have yet to see, but I hear it's good. Yeah, uh, he's he's quite a good genre director. Hardware is great. Yeah, yeah, Hardware um, is a really great he, cyberpunk horror movie. He, he's one of those great horror directors that doesn't work a lot, unfortunately. Well, after but, yeah. he couldn't get arrested in this town for a while. Yeah, that's true. The Island of Dr. Moreau. Like, yeah. He was just, he just died. And uh, yeah, he was rather famously was fired off the set of Dr. Moreau, but he wanted to sort of check up on his production, so he put on an animal mask and hung around the set anyway. Yeah, as an extra. Uh, in, in, incognito as an extra. Nobody That's knew, so nobody knew the original director was still there watching, you know... I love that Watching story. them trying to change... That is a bizarre film. That is bizarre. It, and this, and you it's know not what? unwatchable, but it's really it's not. Weird. It's not unwatchable, and I, I think some of the... Some of the points actually come across in that movie, which I, is kind of a miracle. I actually really love the way Val Kilmer devolves in that movie. <laughs> he sort of gradually turns into Marlon Brando. Yeah, like he actually yeah, has a really good Marlon Brando yeah. impersonation. Weird flick. Uh, Color Out of Space uh, stars Nicolas Cage and uh, Julie Richardson as a married couple. They live in a home, and they've updated it in that instead of it being sort of a rural farm, they're actually... Uh, former urbanites who are trying to live off the grid. So everything is uh, cut off from civilization by design. Mm. Uh, They have uh, two children, played by uh, Madeline Arthur and the wonderful Brendan Meyer. Mm -hmm. A.K.A. Uh, the kid. And and this film is actually really, really good about, right at the beginning, establishing kind of how uh, strange and how much character these people have before the mayhem begins. Mm. And uh, so, sort of the relationships they have, how some things are strained, how some things are very, really very warm. Um, I was mi- reminded of, uh, actually, of Mandy, if you remember the opening scenes of Mandy, where mm. uh, Nicolas Cage and Mandy... Mm. Uh, Andrea Riseborough. Andrea Riseboro have uh, such wonderful character just sort of hanging out for the first half of that movie. It's no, actually, I actually love their relationship. The first half yeah. is really actually very slow. All the mayhem is in the second half of that movie. Uh, and I think something similar is happening here with the with the Julie Richardson, Richardson character, where they're kind of establishing who they are and how they do have kind of a warm relationship. And there's also a little bit of fun strangeness. Uh, the son, uh, the the Brendan Meyer character, is really just sort of like a, a shiftless stoner character. Uh, the teenage girl is just sort of a snippy teenage girl. Then the color out of space lands in their yard, and it turns into From Beyond and the Thing all at once. <laughs> but these two Lovecraftian movies... Now, here's the thing. It draws from the Thing and it draws from From Beyond. Like, those are clearly influences. But this is not a nostalgia piece. This actually feels really wholly all unto itself. Mm. Because uh, Nicolas Cage begins to go mad. He begins acting like a teenage daughter. So it's like his teenage daughter's brain has leaked into his brain somehow through these weird sort of psychic tendrils. It's creepy. But at the same time, it's also mutating a lot of the the life around them. Eventually, they have an alpaca farm. That's sort of the, the joke. They, they milk alpacas, and that's sort of the, the way they make their living. Right. Yeah, the alpacas will, will turn into a, a thing, 
at one point. <laughs> oh God, that's not good. Yeah, and and that's not good at all. And of course, this whatever this force is is also forcing them to stay nearby whenever they try to flee. They you know circumstances change or something happens in their brain where they just can't. And eventually, some really freaky shit happens. <laughs> so some really horrible things happen to the Jolie Richardson character that I, I can't even describe. And this film is really, really good about meeting out just enough information so that you can kind of get in line with the characters and this bizarre color that's affecting everything, while also keeping you totally off balance in this miasma of complete insanity. And any film that's a miasma of complete insanity by design, I'm on board with. Um, they do try, and they even try to work in some of Lovecraft's dialogue. There, there is, uh, if you've ever read H.P. Lovecraft's stories, all, almost all of his stories are, are in the first person. There's very little and, dialogue to speak uh, of. There, yeah, there's not a lot of dialogue, and it's usually uh, told from a, a narrator who is recanting some horrible thing that has just happened to them. And indeed, and mm. another thing mm. I think is interesting, and what makes it actually, Stuart Gordon has talked to, Stuart Gordon's directed a lot of uh, Lovecraft adaptations, and he's talked about this at length. Lovecraft wrote almost no female characters. No, goodness no. Like, um, like you could count was, them on one hand, like significant female oh, Lo- characters Lo- in any of his work. Lovecraft was sexist and racist AF. He was yeah. he was not a good man, but he yeah. he, he, created, he wrote scary things. He wrote uh, wrote good scary stories, but yeah, they were yeah. always about uh, lone white male characters who were sort of recant- recounting some sort of horrible thing that had happened to them. Yeah, people losing their sanity. So there there is a reporter character who gets to give like some opening and closing narration, and we do, do get this kind of. His language was really weirdly elaborate. It wasn't poetry, but his prose was really uh, ornate, and I, I think that's why a lot of uh, a lot of adolescents really sort of are drawn to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Just his prose draws you in, and he tells these stories of these monsters. Um, yes, he was shockingly racist. Uh, but I'm glad that we sort of got this this kind of opening and closing because it made all of the insanity feel a little bit more poetic and a lot more apocalyptic. Mm. This is a great horror movie. Great. I really enjoyed it. You know, uh, it's been said uh, mm-hmm. that this movie might usher in like a new wave of high-profile Lovecraft adaptations. Like we had like a new wave of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, yeah. and a couple, a couple of those. And we never really had... We had a couple of good popular cult Lovecraft adaptations, there, mostly by Stuart Gordon. Yeah, there there have been. Well, there was Reanimator, which yes. is Stuart, Stuart Gordon, which is which the is, least Lovecraftian story yeah, Lovecraft it's, ever it's, did. It's a, it's Lovecraft openly admitted that he was just ripping off Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun. That's it's it's a fun and, and it's well the movie's great because it's just it, it feels like midnight movie schlock it doesn't feel like H P Lovecraft at all mm-hmm. it's actually really um, well characterized and I would argue it is in and of itself a horror yeah. classic but it doesn't it's not Lovecraftian in that sort of unspeakable doom kind of way right, that right, right. Um, works I, I never I saw re, I saw From Beyond which um, I, I dig a lot that's just a, again but that's like twisted schlock well, modern version of H P Lovecraft the actual story of From Beyond if you read it is actually incredibly simple mm-hmm. and in order to expand it into a feature. Gordon just added a ton of S and M. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's fun, yeah, th- but th- it's it's kind of a ramshackle yeah, film. But bl- bless Barbara Crampton. She's very game in that movie. Yeah. She, and also in Reanimator. Uh 
there was In the Mouth of Madness, which is Lovecraft-ish. It's like Lovecraft adjacent, but that's not a Lovecraft adaptation. It gets it's more the tone ab- right. It, it's more about like, what if Lovecraft were as popular as Stephen King? Yeah. Essentially. And he, he and, and his so books were, were bestsellers and they drove people mad if you read them. Yeah, yeah. Good idea. Um, the, another big adaptation, <laughs> which is quite good. It's also like a lot of Stuart Gordon's mm-hmm. Lovecraft adaptations, a bit more tawdry than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dagon is I, actually I, pretty good. I haven't seen Dagon. It's pretty yeah. good. It's not great. The yeah. idea idea was uh, G- Gordon wanted to make a big budget adaptation of one of Lovecraft's best and better known stories mm-hmm. called The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Mm-hmm. Shadow Over Innsmouth is about a town in uh, a secretive town in New England where most of his stories take place uh, where the people had basically made a deal uh, with aquatic gods mm-hmm. uh, to keep their fishing town in place but in the process they became fish people. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart Gordon had a story about how he wanted to tell. It was just, Lovecraft was really scared of fish stuff. He yeah, was scared under, of fish, under scared sea of creatures. Octopi. Yeah, yeah. Lovecraft, uh, his big god Cthulhu, as he's like uh, a, usually described as having a, like an, an octopus-like head. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Lovecraft just found that freaky. He found that really, really unnatural. And Stuart Gordon pitched this mm. uh, in Hollywood, and apparently, the note he got back most was, "I love the story." Instead of fish people, can they be vampires? And he said no, because then it's Salem's lot. <laughs> Fair, yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, we're not interested in that. All right. Um, there have been a few, but there's a there, lot there's of material. An, there's that, an anthology film called Necronomicon where Jeffrey Combs, who was in mm-hmm. Reanimator uh, and the sequels, came back to play H.P. Lovecraft. and like He's reading the Necronomicon. Yeah. It's full of arcane yeah, tales. Some of them are better than others. We've heard a lot of references to the Necronomicon. That's I, I think that's something Lovecraft came up with. He, it is. Um, yeah. Lovecraft um, came up... It, it was inspired by he, some other stuff, but yeah. the idea is Lovecraft came up with... Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard were two of the early pulp writers who didn't just write stories. They wrote with a mythology, like mm. a somewhat cohesive mythology between their various tales. And... and um, one of the recurring themes in Lovecraft's work was something called the Necronomicon. It is an arcane book full of evil incantations and spells. Mm. Everyone's been after it. Uh, if you've ever read it, you've probably been driven insane or driven to do some unspeakable things. And it's mm. basically a big floating MacGuffin in yeah. a lot of his works. And because Lovecraft's work are now in the public domain, the Necronomicon has been used in Everything. Everything. Most famously in the Evil Dead movies, mm. which aren't actually Lovecraft adaptations. Not at all, but the Necronomicon is in there. Yeah. Uh, they printed a Necronomicon at one point. Oh, yeah. Um, and what I appreciate is the Necronomicon does show up in Color Out of Space. Huh. But it's not the Evil Dead Necronomicon where it's bound in flesh and actually has like the incantations It's in just it. the paperback that they... Re- it's the paperback. <laughs> Here's the thing. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the teenage daughter, she's, like, kind of goth, so, of course, she has this paperback edition of the Necronomicon, which was the same edition I got from Bookstar oh, nice. over on Wilshire Boulevard my, in Santa Monica, my California. My brother had that. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, you know what's a good underrated uh, Lovecraft adaptation? Mm-hmm. The Resurrected with Chris that, Sarandon. That's a, that's Lovecraft? I've seen yeah. that. It's based on the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Oh, um, I, I don't think I'd put that together. No, uh, it's really quite good. Uh, it's a story of um, a private hell, detective who is uh, enlisted to investigate. A woman uh, hires him because her husband uh, moved into an old house where her ancestor once lived, uh, at, where her husband's ancestor once lived, and her husband becomes obsessed with him. Turns out he was an evil alchemist, and her husband o- might be a portal to hell. Yeah, her, her husband might be doing unspeakable things in the basement, and he mm-hmm. investigates and. Um, 
it's pretty solid, pretty solid. The last act is fucking great, and there's some amazing makeup <laughs> effects in it. I watched it accidentally, like my TV was broken, and I watched it in black and white, and it was mm. even better. <laughs> like yeah. one of those, I would actually even worked mm. uh, better. That had actually been previously adapted uh, into a Vincent Price film called The Haunted Palace. Oh, and I've seen that one too. Which was right. erroneously uh, called an, an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation because those adaptations were popular and no one knew who mm. Lovecraft was. And, and, Love, and Poe wrote a story called The Haunted Palace. So. Yeah, so they just oh, took I, The Haunted Palace and they made it the story of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. I thought that, I thought that, that, movie's, <laughs> also, that movie's also good. That movie's also yeah. really quite excellent. It's really I feel like atmospheric and spooky. Colorado, there, there haven't been films, on, I think maybe until this one, where that really kind of captured that weird kind of pulpy insanity of a Lovecraft story yeah. where you can kind of see somebody going completely unhinged. At least Cast not Nicolas in... Cast Cage, you right. got something. But I think they have, but I think there have been movies that have been inspired by him rather mm-hmm. than the actual yeah. Lovecraft. Like, like, Carpenter did it a couple of times. Like, the thing clearly has right. Lovecraftian elements to it. Right, right. In the Mouth of Madness is a great mm-hmm. Lovecraft movie that just doesn't happen to be based on an actual Lovecraft story. Mm-hmm. People clearly have taken so, yeah, the, ideas from him. But I, I, I feel like if if Color Out of Space is doing Color Out of Space is it, it's um, it's X Men. Like remember, remember when the X Men movie came out and everyone says, "Oh yeah, we can do superhero movies now," and that it was preceded by twenty straight years of mm-hmm. high profile superhero movies. This could start. This could like, be like the crack in the door. He, he might have unlocked like how to do it. Yeah, right? th- this is how you do it. This yeah, is how you make a Lovecraft movie. Yeah. So I'm taking it on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm-hmm. And a reminder uh, to those of us who may be new: uh, we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus, with C being average. Mm-hmm. Most movies are average. C minus being below average to terrible, mm-hmm. just anything bad. And C plus is above average to genuinely great. I'm guessing Color Out of Space is a C plus. Color Out of Space is a C plus. I, I dug it a lot, and I recommend you seek it out. Okay. Um, I, I think it's getting a very limited release, but okay. you'll be it'll be on Shutter soon enough, I'm sure. Cool. I look forward to checking it out again. I can't officially review it because I know Brendan Meyer too well. Okay. Uh, next I've, up, I've met Brendan Meyer, but you've he's met, not like a close no, friend. No, no, you, you couldn't yeah. be. There wouldn't be a conflict of interest for you. All right. uh, what did Jack do? Uh, also a C plus, uh, and yeah, that one's only seventeen minutes. It's on Netflix. If you have a subscription, just flip it on. Once I'm done with the Oscar mm-hmm. shorts, I'll get around to it. Uh, what we got here? Um, the last full measure. Now that is a C minus. I I did not like this film one bit. All right, and uh, the gentleman. Hey, I get to review this one. <laughs> uh, the gentleman, the new uh, Guy Ritchie movie. It is a perfectly functional Guy Ritchie movie. It is a reasonably entertaining Guy Ritchie movie, but I don't think it does anything particularly interesting with his shtick. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it is quite slick and sometimes fun. So I'm giving it a high C. Okay. Um, I think he it's just his shtick, but I think it's his shtick done par excellence. So okay. I'm going to say it's a C plus because right. I, I enjoyed watching it. It's a pretty good week. Goal um, I, I, but I will have to qualify racism notwithstanding. Those are not funny jokes. Yeah. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. But mm. we can work with that. Um, okay. So that is it for critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening. We mm. sure as hell appreciate you. Uh, we'll be back next week with a ton of reviews, including the new releases, Gretel and Hansel, mm. the rhythm section, and all 15 of the Oscar nominated short films. Those are the nominees for best live action short, best animated short and best documentary short. Those films are being released in theaters this coming week. Uh, and we feel that too often they get the short shrift. A lot of times they'll pop up. Not short shrift. 
<laughs> a lot of times they'll pop up at the Academy Awards and everyone at home is like, well, I can get a sandwich because I don't know these movies. Mm. And we feel that they are some, usually represent some excellent filmmaking and that it's worth spreading the word about them, uh, whether or not you actually get an opportunity to see them. It, it's been fascinating to watch the, t- because we've been following the shorts for numerous years and, yeah, uh, and we, it's been interesting to see sort of the way the trends rise and fall in the shorts community and how different it is from the mainstream film community or the feature length film community. 100%. Yeah. Um, it, they're very different kinds of films in mm. almost every regard. Even like you look at the documentary shorts and they're very different from like the documentary mm. features that okay. were nominated. You, you've seen some of these already, right? Yeah. How many are about end of life care? Actually, none this time. Oh, thank goodness. There's one. <laughs> <laughs> like every year, there's at least one or two films about end of life care. It's no, like, no, no. There's oh, no gosh, end of life care so and there's no. None about the Holocaust for once. Oh my God! Um, there's what is what is happening to the world? Here, I'll give you a short preview of the documentary shorts. Uh, there's one about uh, refugee children who are going through a new psychological oh, ch- syndrome. Children in peril. Are children right. in peril. But mm-hmm. like they're going through a new psychological syndrome that has been previously like unrecognized. Okay. Uh, there's one about a horrifying ferry disaster in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one about Vietnamese immigrants who learn uh, who take dancing lessons. All right, so the fun one. That's yeah. that's that's one of the fun ones. Um, oh, I just watched these. They're starting to the, right. to blur together. So, but, but there's one about uh, a local politician uh, who is also in, in America, uh, who is trying to put an end to gun violence, and is also uh, he also does rap battles. <laughs> so uh, so, are, okay, so we got two fun ones. Well, t- it takes place. It's serious issues though. Yeah, he just yeah. he's a, he's just an interesting. Uh, mm. Fun guy. And another one that's about a school in Afghanistan uh, for young girls that also teaches them how to skateboard. Okay. So that one's like, that juxtaposes fun and yeah, seriousness yeah, yeah. as well. So altogether, yeah, that, oftentimes the documentaries are just designed to like punch your heart into oblivion. Yeah. Here, there's some serious ones. Most of them are. But they're not going to make you just like. I don't know, like run to the nearest bar and get drunk. Like, just, like no hope anymore. Like, it's not like that this time. Okay. They're they're way more measured than usual. All right, sounds good. But we'll talk about every single one of those in some detail on the next episode of Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with all that stuff. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where we have tons of exclusive content we're going to be working on more of that as the week goes on uh we have other shows on the critically acclaimed network we're going to be recording a new episode of we've got mail tonight maybe maybe mm-hmm. uh soon regardless uh we'll get to that we missed it last week because of all the the hecticness um we also have another episode of uh cancel too soon we're reviewing tv shows that lasted one season or less uh this coming episode was chosen by our patrons uh, and it is a, sh- a spy show called Masquerade, starring everybody. Masquerade. Da, da, well, it stars Kirstie Alley. She's the main star. Yeah, but the, the pilot's got everybody in it's it. It's got, like, Oliver Reed and Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. And you're watching it like, holy crap. Um, so that's that's pretty cool as well. And uh, coming up, if not next week, then the week after, we're going to start our brand new Star Wars podcast. And uh, can we announce the title? You can announce the title, because we've, we've finally settled on one. You, yeah, it took us you a You had while. a wonderful idea. So we've decided that for our new Star Wars podcast, uh, in which we're going to review not Star Wars movies, but the movies that inspired Star Wars mm. and heavily influenced Star Wars, 
We're starting a new show called Star Wars Episode Zero. <laughs> it took us all that time to come up with that. But every that's, episode... That's, that's William's idea. Every episode of Star Wars Episode Zero will be about another movie or significant pop culture uh, thing mm. that influenced Star Wars and without which Star Wars wouldn't be yeah, Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, can't wait to get started on that because we've already got a great list of films, some of which are well-known, some of which are relatively obscure, and um, it's going to be a real fun journey. I love using popular movies to introduce people to the vast history of cinema. It's going to be a l- little bit more uh, research-driven, which we haven't done before. So, I know. Yeah. It's going to be real cool. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're on Twitter. I'm at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and together we're at Critic Acclaim if you want to write us. Uh, we have our letters podcast. We've got mail. We read your emails uh, and answer your questions and respond to your critiques. Uh, the, e- the email address is letters at critically net, And I think that just about covers everything. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody, once again. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?